The latest global climate summit, known as COP26, took place in Glasgow, Scotland at the end of 2021. Now, heading into the summit, I think scientists and activists were hopeful that the world leaders would strengthen their national commitments. These existing national commitments have put the world on a trajectory of warming by about 2.9 degrees Celsius this century, well beyond the 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius target. However, by the end of the summit, I think there was a sense of disappointment that the national commitments were not sufficient. Alex Sharma, the president of COP26, called the Glasgow Climate Summit a fragile win and suggests that the success of the pact will not be nations having signed on to it, but rather, quote, whether they meet and deliver on their commitments, end quote. So delegations, they return home, where the implementation begins. As part of this implementation, we explore the role of renewable energy in helping to reach these climate targets. Are current trends and adoption of these technologies sufficient in order to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Is it even possible to grow these technologies quickly enough to achieve the 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius targets? We'll discuss this and more in today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, Advancing Sustainable Solutions. Our mission is to make sustainability research more accessible and engaging for society. This episode is produced at the IIIEE at Lund University. everyone, and welcome back to a new episode of the IIIEE podcast called Advancing Sustainable Solutions. Well, it is a new year, and with the changing of the calendar often comes other changes as well, here on the podcast too. I'm excited to welcome back Sophie Sandine Lompar as co-host of the podcast. Hey, Sophie. Hi, Stephen. To our recurring listeners, you may recognize Sophie. Her and I started the podcast back in 2018. Yeah, we did. And what's kind of cool is that at that point, we were among the early pioneers within academia to see podcasting as the opportunity to convey research results to a broader audience. Yeah, and that remains our mission, to make sustainability research more accessible, engaging, and actionable for you, our listeners, by connecting each episode of the podcast to research events and people at our institute. The podcast remains an initiative of early career researchers. Sophie and I are both now postdocs at our department at Lund University. And for our returning listeners, not to worry, Catherine steps away as co-host to welcome a new baby into the world. I just want to take a quick moment to thank her for her contribution to the podcast. You know, I shared this with her, but I really, I learned so much from working with her. I really admired her ability to quickly identify the important information of any of the topics we were covering in any episode, and then be able to succinctly and meaningfully summarize this content for our audience. It's just awesome. And uh, we wish her and her new family all the best with their future. Yeah, my best wishes as well. And of course, I have been tuning in every month and I have truly enjoyed Catherine's and your work and voices. And it is a shame she was not able to say goodbye herself, but as I understand, you had to postpone the December episode because of the pandemic. 
Yeah, it's true. You know, while we aim to release a new podcast episode every month, you know, circumstances don't always allow for that. As you know, it's certainly not the easiest time to manage work and personal life with the pandemic, which has meant for us here on the podcast that we have to record the podcast remotely, coordinating new technologies and relying on a stable internet connection, which I can't say that I always have now living out in the countryside. And of course, it's important to accommodate the health and well-being of our team as well as our guests. And we realize that, once again, coronavirus cases are up globally. And this is having a profound impact on our healthcare workers, teachers, parents, and, well, all of us, really. We wish all of our listeners health and happiness into the new year. And at the same time, our sustainability challenges are also profound and require urgent action as well. So even though the corona situation is still acute, it is also important for me to continue to lend my voice to advancing sustainable solutions. Yeah, I agree. I think I've landed somewhere there as well. Something that I've been advocating for is to have a more honest and transparent conversation about the challenges that I face and that we face as a society, whether it's my own mental health or the coronavirus pandemic or climate change or, or any other of the multifaceted challenges that we are facing. Of course, I hope that the end of the pandemic is in sight, and I hope that we are able to make the sufficient progress to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But these are hopes, not facts themselves. And what I hope for moving forward is that we focus our conversations on facts, on experiential and scientific evidence that enable us to take the action in the direction of our hopes. So let's then continue a conversation about the role of renewable energy in helping us reach our climate targets set out in the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement is a legally binding international treaty on climate change, adopted by 196 countries at COP21 in Paris on 12 December 2015. Its goal is to limit global warming to well below 2, or preferably to 1.5 degrees Celsius, compared to pre-industrial levels. To achieve this, countries aim to reach global peaking of greenhouse gas emissions as soon as possible. And the timeframe to meet this goal, to achieve a net zero or climate neutral world, is by the middle of this century. According to the International Energy Agency, in 2019, power generation and transportation accounted for two-thirds of the total global greenhouse gas emissions. This includes the production of electricity and heat, as well as the transportation of goods and people. And while I think it's easiest for me and you to think about this on an individual level, so for example, the electricity that I use at home or the emissions for my cars, I think it's important that we acknowledge that industry remains the largest emitting sector in society. And with power generation and transportation such significant contributors of greenhouse gas emissions, I think this certainly justifies greater focus on renewable energy and electrification of our transportation. Renewable energy is an important part of the conversation about our energy transition away from fossil fuels and a pillar of many countries' national commitments. Yeah, and we've seen this borne out in reality as well. Every year, the world adds more renewable energy production capacity than the year before. But looking historically, we have to ask the question, is this growth sufficient to achieve our climate targets? According to a recent publication in Nature Energy, the short answer is no. To meet the climate goals requires decades of growth in renewables at rates higher than those observed historically in most countries. 
Now, that's not to say that it's impossible to boost growth rates to where they need to be, but what will it take to get there? And what can we learn about looking to the past to help us achieve the climate goals in the future? So this recent publication in Nature Energy that Stephen just mentioned is called National Growth Dynamics of Wind and Solar Power Compared to the Growth Required for Global Climate Targets. And we have two of the co-authors, Ale Chirp and Jessica Jewell, joining us to discuss their findings and help us unpack this further a little bit later in the episode. When we say renewable energy, we are referring to fuels that are regenerative, such as solar, wind, hydro, and biofuels. Renewable energy means that the source of fuel is able to be replenished, renewed, restored, or regrown over a relatively short timescale, in contrast to forming fossil fuels, such as coal and oil, which are processes that take over hundreds of millions of years. Again, according to the International Energy Agency, wind accounted for 6.7 and solar 3.4% of the global electricity production in 2021. And the growth of these renewable technologies has reached record levels for the last two years. China alone accounted for almost half of the global increase in renewable electricity, followed by the United States, the European Union, and India. Now, much of this growth is driven by new climate and energy policies in many of the countries around the world, especially as governments set higher ambitions to meet the 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius targets. There's also growing demand on the market for renewable energy. So for example, a recent study in the United States suggests that more than 40% of consumers prefer renewable energy as their primary choice of electricity production. And consumers are willing to pay more as well for 100% renewable energy. And all of this should be acknowledged and celebrated. The deployment of solar and wind technology has come very far in the last decades, with much effort by those in the industry and learning among early adopters. But some hard truths remain. While approximately 10% of the total electricity production globally comes from wind and solar, data shows coal still accounts for more than 35% of global electricity production. And the growth that we are seeing across the world in wind and solar is only about half that is required to achieve a net zero or climate neutral world by mid-century. Yikes. Okay, so those statistics do suggest that more effort is needed to decarbonize our electricity infrastructure. So let's, let's talk about that. Is it realistic to grow wind and solar as fast as required? And what might this growth look like? So to answer these questions, it is helpful to understand two concepts. The first is the technology adoption lifecycle. The second is the technology diffusion process. Both of these concepts together explain the rate of deployment of new technologies such as wind and solar. Okay, so the first concept, right? the technology adoption lifecycle. This is a sociological model that describes the adoption or acceptance of a new technology. So to think about this and how this mechanism works in practice, picture a bell being placed on a graph with the peak in the middle and two tailing ends. This is what we call a bell curve. 
on the x-axis is time, and on the y-axis is the number of adopters, the number of people that are adopting a new technology. And as we move through time across the x-axis, the number of adopters starts small and increases to some peak and then proceeds to fall again. Of course, we've given names to the different groups of people represented in this illustration. For example, the small but important group of people that first adopt a technology are referred to as innovators. These people are usually willing to take more risk or they have some expert knowledge related to the new technology. The next group of people are what are called early adopters. This group is still a small minority, but larger in number than the innovators. And they tend to be young, educated, maybe idealistic or enthusiastic about a new technology or innovation. So these groups, the innovators and the early adopters, they are important. Their experiences paved the way for the early majority to adopt new technologies. The early majority are more conservative, yet open to new ideas, and are able to learn from the experiences of the innovators and early adopters. These technologies become more affordable over time with less risk. It is here that we see the peak in the total number of new adopters at any point in time, separating the early majority from the late majority. The late majority are people that are maybe a bit older with less knowledge or experience with new technologies. They may be more conservative or apprehensive, but ultimately adopt the new technology. And then we have the final group at the tail end of the bell. And these are called the laggards. They are often unwilling to adopt a new technology for many reasons until it is the only remaining option on the market. So in summary, the concept of technology adoption lifecycle is represented graphically as a bell curve and describes the acceptance or adoption of a new technology over time among people labeled as the innovators, early adopters, early majority, late majority, or the laggards. And this concept of the technology adoption lifecycle correlates with the second concept we wish to discuss here on the podcast, and that is of the technology diffusion process. So for example, if we add up the total number of people over time adopting a new technology, we can study the deployment or diffusion of this technology in society. Right, Stephen. The technology diffusion process illustrates the development, acceleration, maturing, and stabilization of new technologies on the market. And researchers can study this by looking at the cumulative number of people adopting new technologies over time. In fact, this is also graphically represented not as a bell curve, but as an S-curve. This S-shaped curve illustrates the accelerating growth of new technologies. One can visualize this graphically as a slowly increasing line, followed by a steep increase to some inflection points of some maximum growth, and eventually a gradually increasing line until reaching some plateau. The x-axis is time, and the y-axis is the cumulative number of adopters. You got that, Stephen? I think so. It does feel a bit abstract to be describing these curves in an audio format without being able to visualize them. So if it's helpful to you, you can draw these graphs to aid in your understanding. And I think doing so really helps to demonstrate how these two concepts are correlated. The innovators and early adopters are few in numbers. So cumulatively, they correspond to a slowly increasing S-curve. 
As the early majority begins adopting a new technology, we see a quick rise in the cumulative number of adopters until some inflection point. This inflection point in the S-curve corresponds to the peak in the bell curve between the early majority and the late majority, where the quick rise begins to taper off. This taper then flattens over time as the laggards slowly adopt a new technology. The technology adoption process follows three distinct phases. These are formative, growth, and saturation. The formative phase sees ongoing learning and experimentation, which is characterized by uncertainty and higher costs. Moving beyond the formative phase to the growth phase tends to need a spark or motivating factor. When speaking about renewable energy, the need is clear. We must reduce and replace carbon-intensive electricity production to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. However, is this need sufficient? Well, policy support may also provide this motivation and stimulate growth. The takeoff points between the formative phase and the growth phase is characterized by the systems around new technologies ready to support steady expansion. For example, this support may include the requisite knowledge and capacity among installers or financial policy incentives such as subsidies or rebates that draw attention to the new technology and increase affordability. But this takeoff point will vary between technologies and their contexts. Yeah, so the growth phase sees the steady expansion of this new technology accelerating due to increased economic profitability, maybe reduced resistance among incumbent industries as well as users, and continued learning among actors within the industry. However, this growth does start to slow over time, and this is in part because of increasing complexity with more people adopting a technology. It may also be because of resource constraints that are impacting the new production of this technology, as well as social or political resistance. Ultimately, a new technology reaches the saturation phase where there is some stabilization in the market, and we do see fewer adopters then over time. So these two concepts, the technology adoption lifecycle and the technology diffusion process, help to understand the past, present, and future growth of wind and solar. And with this knowledge, we can answer the initial question we posed. Is it realistic to grow wind and solar as fast as is required to achieve the 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius targets? Stephen. Yeah, so to answer this question, one may compare the historical growth rates of these technologies with the known growth rates needed to achieve these targets. We can calculate these historical growth rates by plotting real-world data of the adoption of wind and solar as an S-curve and calculating the maximum slope or steepness at any point on that curve. And it is this slope that corresponds to the historical maximum growth rate, which can be compared to the known growth rate required to meet our climate targets. And this is exactly what our guests did. Let's now hear from Jessica Jewell and Ollie Chirp. Now, we have the pleasure to welcome Ali Chirp and Jessica Jewell to the podcast, co-authors of the publication called National Growth Dynamics of Wind and Solar Power, 
compared to the growth required for global climate targets, which was published in Nature Energy. Ale Chirp is a professor at both the IIIE at Lund University and at the Central European University, and coordinator of the Erasmus Mundus Master's course in Environmental Sciences Policy and Management, called MESPOM. Jessica Jewell is an associate professor in energy transitions at the Department of Space, Earth and Environment at Chalmers University in Gothenburg, and a professor at the Center for Climate and Energy Transformation at the University of Bergen. Now, we also want to acknowledge that Jessica is an alum from the MESPOM master's program hosted here at the IIIE. She's also a European Research Council grantee and a senior fellow of the Breakthrough Institutes. So with that said, welcome Jessica and Ale. It's really great to have you here joining us for today's episode. Jessica, can you please tell us a bit more about your area of research? Yeah, so what I work on is I work on trying to figure out how we can save the climate. So we know how to save the climate in mathematical models. So we have these really big mathematical models and we can calculate what portfolio technologies would be needed to save the climate. But I work on trying to figure out, okay, which of those technologies can grow fast enough and at what scale needed to reach our climate targets, given the sociopolitical and um, technological constraints in the real world. And certainly technology is how we've framed much of this episode and looking at renewable energy, in particular wind and solar. I'm curious, Ale, what do you see as the role of technology to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Well, um, I think it's only technologies that can actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So this is absolutely paramount. We cannot reduce our emissions without switching to technologies which don't have emissions. I want to turn then to the article that you recently published. I'm curious what problem or question specifically guided your research here? Yeah, so what we're interested in is today, solar and wind are in the single digits, but they're growing really rapidly. and one of the dominant views in the field is that they're growing at these exponential rates. So if you look at kind of year-on-year -year compound growth rates, they're growing at these exponential growth rates. And so people say, well, okay, well, they're single digits today, but we can actually reach these really, really high penetration in just a few years. So don't worry, solar and wind are going to dominate. And we were wondering if this is true. So we actually started our article and the article actually doesn't even contain an exponential growth model in the end, but we actually started by trying to model exponential growth with these curves. And Vadim, who's not on the podcast, but um, he did the um, modeling for this. He came back, he said, it doesn't work. It's not exponential. And we were like, wait, wait, no, it does. It must work. <laughs> Everybody says it's exponential, it must be exponential. <laughs> and then we had to figure out, okay, well, if it's not exponential, what is it? And how should we measure it? And that's our real innovation is that we measured it using an S-curve, which makes sense. I mean, if you slow down for a minute and think about it, it makes sense that it's not gonna, it's nothing can grow exponentially forever. Eventually an exponential growth has to stabilize to linear growth and then slow down. But what we were surprised about is that it's actually stabilizing to linear growth even before we're, we kind of intuitively expected it. And we're the first to actually be able to measure this and quantify this. And since 
we were able to quantify when it switches to this linear growth, we were actually able to say, okay, well, this maximum growth that you ever achieve is actually slower than what we need to reach climate targets. Yeah, so let's unpack that a little bit more. I mean, I've also hoped and, and heard that we are waiting for this continued exponential growth of renewables, but if it is indeed linear, what implications does that have for us and able to achieve our climate targets? What we did is that we measured the growth, not in the world as a whole, but in individual countries. And then what you can see, you can look at a country like Denmark, which introduced wind power, for example, in the 1980s. So we already have almost 40 years experience or Germany and Spain that introduced in the 1990s, and we have like 20, 30 years experience. And this gives us sort of much more data points and much better understanding of what will later happen in the world, right? Even though some countries are still exponential, but we just presume that they will somehow follow the trajectories of these pioneers. And um, it is still, we are still not kind of, Steve, coming back to your question, what will what does it mean? Uh, we still don't quite know what it means, like we are not in the business of prediction, but we know that what is envisioned in many climate stabilization scenarios by IPCC is probably not feasible, because these rates which they envision as a world as a whole has not been achieved in any single country so far, even in pioneering countries like Germany. So what are the implications for the development of solar and wind between early adopters and laggards then, looking at your comparisons between different nations? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. And what we were hoping to find is that countries that adopt the technology later, so countries that adopt solar and wind later, would grow faster. And you might think that would be the case because countries that it would, would adopt it later would be able to learn from countries that adopt it earlier. So when Vietnam introduces the technology, they would be able to learn from Germany. So German engineers would be able to come there and say, okay, this is how we did it. And then Vietnamese engineers would be able to do it faster. And this is called technological learning and it can happen across borders. And you would hope that it would be able to accelerate the S-curve Unfortunately, this is not what we found to be the case. What we found to be the case is that countries that adopt the technology later are, if anything, slower than countries which adopt it earlier. And we think the reason that happens is because the countries which adopt it later have a worse context to adopt it. That means that they have weaker institutions, they have a worse investment environment. So even though they're able to learn from countries which adopted earlier, the conditions that exist in their countries cancel out the technological learning. So this is a really unfortunate finding. No, it's a bit concerning, you know, maybe not included in your research, but I'm curious what recommendations could be made in order to address this lack of technological learning among nations. One thing we tried to figure out is when this learning is kind of faster in what situations. And um, what we found is that it's actually faster in conglomerations of countries like the European Union, which uh, are very unique in the sense that they have free trade between the countries and the free movement of people, capital, expertise, knowledge, you know, and, and stuff like that, but also common policy goals. And, and that is that together actually in this kind of federalized fragmented policies 
they enable faster growth. Also, like Germany can be a model of it, right? Germany is a federal structure, and you could see how different provinces of Germany, how lender, how they could learn from each other, but also help each other because the, the trade is open to, to accelerate. Then um, we also make some other recommendations. One of them is that we have to look beyond renewables when we you know, design long-term decarbonization plans. We have to look at the other technologies. We have to have as, as wide portfolio as possible, possibly to accelerate the rates. We also make a recommendation that um, we have to have a more realistic scenarios about climate. So it is probably better to be like, you know, like a little bit more sober and more realistic what can and cannot be done rather than concentrate as we do now. We kind of have two concentrations. One of these totally dystopian scenarios where nobody does anything and the world is just, you know, being fried in, a, in 30 years. And one is this totally utopian scenario which were like everything changes so fast, it's not realistic, and then we just kind of stop global warming. And I think the task of science and research is to find what is more likely to happen, which is something in between, so that we can like prepare and adjust and kind of, you know, also try to make it a little bit better. Just to add to, there's kind of a third type of scenario, which is projecting current policies and this may be in that genre, but I think one of the reasons why it's difficult to do this type of scenario of kind of trying to figure out what type of world might unfold is because we will be wrong. Whoever publishes these types of scenarios will be wrong because when you try to predict the future, you will be wrong. But it's a useful scientific exercise to think systematically through okay, well, what are the forces and mechanisms and where might we bound this space of plausible futures? I definitely think uh, being humble and recognizing the limitations of our predictions is important. Uh, but nonetheless, they do serve an important scientific and policy uh, tools. Um, so I'm curious then, what do you see is the role of policy or industry then to support the growth of solar and wind installation moving forward? Well, once again, it's very interesting that the opinion here is pretty polarized and we saw it when we were trying to publish it, even though we are not in recommendations, but a lot of, you know, like pushback came from, you know, exactly looking at recommendations. And there is basically two camps there. And one camp believes that policies don't matter at all because they say renewables are so cheap now that it's all the matter of kind of letting them go and, uh, you know, having free market and they will just colonize everything in no time. And, and we were very criticized every time we mentioned anything about like societies, institutions, policies. They say, well, it's, it all doesn't matter now because they are so cheap. And on the other hand of the spectrum, what we encountered is that basically there are people who are like this policy fanatics or, you know, policy adherents. And they say, well, of course, because policies are not good enough. If we have a good policies, we can like, you know, accelerate it to cosmic speed. Right. <laughs> and we are trying here to be like in between that policies cannot work if there are no economic conditions because the government cannot subsidize its way out of anything. But also we are not renewables are not developing if you just have a free market. There are too many complexities that will stop them. So there is a need for policies and these policies should be like pretty kind of complex to allow fast growth of renewables. 
and they should be like extend far beyond what is usually discussed with subsidies and taxes they should be you know concerned about land use regulations and grid regulations and stuff like that and the role of industry like once again um supply chains for these technologies are extremely concentrated especially for wind power so there are just a few countries that can you know produce reliable wind power turbines and export them so and it's on these countries and on the industries that we depend upon the you know further growth so it's a big responsibility for like countries like denmark and germany for example that export these things one of the implications then of looking at your work historically is that the growth rates represent what has historically been possible, but it's not to say anything about what is possible in the future. And I'm wondering if you see any challenges associated with the COVID pandemic and supply chains, for example, for renewable energy production, or the increasing electricity prices in Sweden and, and throughout much of the world as being drivers or challenges in particular to the growth rate of renewable energy. At the beginning of the pandemic, I haven't followed this, but at the beginning of the pandemic, there was pretty clear disruption in, I think it was solar supply chains. And so solar, uh, solar or wind supply chains could disrupt the growth curves. My hypothesis, we've never run this natural experiment in the real world. My hypothesis would be that this would not disrupt the growth rates over the long term, but you would just see kind of a blip, like most COVID disruptions we see in energy statistics. I mean, we see a blip in energy demand, we see a blip in coal installation. So we tend, COVID has tended to give us a blip in energy statistics, but I doubt it will have a large scale um, disruption over the long term. If you look empirically, there are some countries where renewables really expanded during COVID, and there are some countries where it is like contracted a little bit or the growth reduced. And there are very complex mechanisms why it happened, so that there is no like unified theory. But I agree with Jessica that unless we have COVID for the rest of our lives, that will be kind of a bleep, right? <laughs> Hopefully not, right? But, uh, uh, and this is something which actually, you know, I reviewed many articles that said that, oh, it's going to change everything. Right. And and it is it just shows like now we see that it is a bleep that how strong forces are driving our energy systems, which are much stronger than COVID or anything like that. Now, about the prices, high energy prices usually encourage investment. Right. So actually, it can also lead to more investment because, you know, people will say it, it, it now just became much more profitable to build anything in energy if you can make sure that it provides energy when prices are high. Right then you get super profit. And that would, of course, uh, you know, benefit sources and technologies such as batteries, but also maybe wind in certain location, offshore wind, that can exactly give electricity where it is needed in southern Sweden during winter months. Uh, this has been a fantastic conversation, and I'm super grateful. I'm wondering if listeners are interested in learning more about your work, where can they go to find you? Yeah, so we have a website, polet.network, where we popularize our work and where we try to translate our work into, into as clear and accessible communication as possible. Oleg and I are both on Twitter as well. Um, I'm at Jessica D. Jewell, and Oleg is at A. Chirp, 
Great. And you can find me on Twitter as well. Uh, I'll make sure that I am communicating about this podcast as well as the website that Jessica mentions. That's www.polet.network. So stay tuned. Alec, uh, Jessica, thanks so much for joining us today. We thank Jessica and Ale for joining us. And I think their research provides important knowledge to policymakers that historical growth rates of wind and solar energy production are not sufficient to achieve the 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius targets. Yeah, so their research examined historical data among 60 countries and modeled an average maximum growth rate of wind and solar of about 1%. However, this growth rate has not been sustained over time in any country at the levels needed to meet many of the climate mitigation scenarios. In fact, approximately half of the climate mitigation scenarios envision growth rates of wind and solar globally above 1.3% per year and as high as 3.3% per year. So what do we do with this new knowledge? I can think of two high-level messages. Either we need to double or triple the growth of wind and solar and sustain this growth over the next one or two decades, or policymakers need to propose more realistic climate goals, or both. This research looked at historical data, especially in countries with advanced adoption of wind and solar energy like Germany and Denmark. And doing so helps to predict what future growth rates may be possible. This is not to say that future growth rates cannot exceed the historical growth rates, but their research indicates that countries with advanced adoption have had more favorable conditions, where the laggards often have less favorable socioeconomic and political circumstances. Yeah, and Jessica Nale suggests that future growth rates could increase in regionally integrated economies like the European Union. They also suggest countries with stronger democratic institutions have more favorable conditions for increased growth. And of course, consumer demand for wind, solar, and other renewable energies may also increase. Yeah, and I think this is where individuals and listeners of the podcast may contribute. Of course, we all have some agency over our sources of electricity or modes of transportation, which affect the demand for energy. Where possible, you may choose to purchase renewable energy from your electricity supplier. So for example, here in Sweden, nearly all major electricity suppliers, they provide an option for consumers to purchase 100% renewable energy. If this is not possible where you live, maybe it's worth contacting your electricity supplier, whoever you get a bill from for your electricity, to request such an option. Yeah, and you yourself may also wish to install renewable energy in the form of solar or wind. Prices of these technologies have dramatically decreased over the last decades, and innovative business models like solar leasing, power purchase agreements, or energy cooperatives may provide flexibility and greater access for those that do not have the upfront costs for installation or who do not own their own roof. There are also a growing number of energy communities. These are citizens coming together to organize themselves collectively to implement renewable energy, energy efficiency, or other energy-related projects. 
In fact, we did a previous podcast episode called Energy Communities, a transition towards a more just energy system, which talks about all this. I want to just recall some of the concepts that we talked about earlier on in the podcast, and that was that of the technology adoption lifecycle and the technology diffusion process. Now, these concepts can help us understand what we need to do now to increase the growth of wind and solar technologies. Put simply, we need to see a greater number of adopters in a shorter period of time. We need to increase the number of people that would belong to the early majority, those that may be more conservative and unable to take the same risks as the innovators and early adopters, yet open to the idea of renewable energy. So what can inspire the early majority to demand greater renewable energy production? Well, here, I think communication and conversation can go a long way. For example, after listening to this episode, you now possess the knowledge that more renewable energy is required to achieve our climate targets. What conversations may you have with this new knowledge? For those of us that may already be purchasing renewable energy from our energy supplier, or have installed renewable energy, or are driving an electric vehicle, we can share our experiences with our friends and family. The knowledge we have about the need for more renewables, the experience we have in seeking out renewable sources of energy. By sharing this with others, we may provide inspiration to our friends and family, as well as support learning among others, but with less risk and less time than the early adopters. It has been proven numerous times in research that peer effects, this is the way that we as neighbors, friends, colleagues and citizens influence each other, is strong when it comes to adopting, for example, solar cells. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this resonates with me very much. My partner and I, we live on a farm in the countryside now, and when we moved, we needed access to a vehicle. So we chose to lease an electric vehicle. And over a few years, we've learned a lot about the different types of electric vehicles, charging infrastructure, and can say a few things about the costs and some of the uh, tribulations of owning an electric vehicle. And we share this. We share this with our friends. And this knowledge has supported two other friends to choose to purchase an electric vehicle in the last year. And that, that feels really great to be able to provide that learning and support to, to my friends. Yeah, it's really great. It's good when you also get to see your friends taking these actions and you can really have these testimonials. Um, however, though, recall that Jessica and Ali suggested that the benefits of technology learning may be cancelled out by less favorable conditions in specific markets. In many markets, the conditions or infrastructure may not support driving an electric vehicle or installing renewable energy. That is why we also need policy and industry action to create the conditions within the markets to support steady growth. For example, Governments can promote the adoption of renewable energy by providing direct subsidies or implement feed-in tariff schemes for renewable energy. They may also provide interest-free or low-interest loans. Governments may also require the installation of renewable energy on all new homes or buildings. While these policies promote the renewable energy markets, additional policies may target polluting industries. So, for example, governments can set a higher minimum price for emissions trading. Uh, they can regulate emissions from uh, power plants or require electricity suppliers to diversify their electricity portfolios with a minimum requirement for renewable energy production. Yeah, all really good ideas, Sophie. But to be clear, many of these policy initiatives are already in place in cities, states and countries around the world. 
In fact, many of the leading countries have already implemented these policies, countries like Germany, Chile, and South Korea. The challenge really is having more countries do so, a hard task, when so many are still providing fossil fuel subsidies. Now, of course, things are a little bit more complex than that. It's not as simple as just installing more wind and solar. There are legitimate challenges that remain to balance the supply and demand of electricity without additional changes to our electricity infrastructure and storage. Here, we suggest governments align their actions with their rhetoric, especially if they are signatories to the Paris Agreement. As we now close this episode, we thought it might be relevant to explore the impact of current events on the growth of wind and solar. So, for example, the impact of coronavirus and increasing energy prices globally. Yeah, and I think these are two really interesting and relevant points to discuss further when we're talking about electricity. I know it's a hot topic here in Sweden. If we take the first, right, considering the impacts of the coronavirus pandemic on wind and solar, the evidence suggests that we don't yet see a huge effect on the deployment of these technologies. So for example, in both 2020 and 2021, these years set records for global growth in renewable energy. However, the pandemic is affecting the relevant supply chains. There have been increasing costs for the raw materials and the production associated with these technologies. And this has prompted an increase in the price for both solar and wind installations. Unfortunately, this has meant some of the cost savings have been wiped out from previous cost reductions afforded by economies of scale and technology development. We actually asked Jessica and Ale about this too. They also acknowledged the potential impact of the pandemic on the supply chain, but thought that we may only see a small impact, a blip, if any, in the growth of wind and solar. Now, of course, this is assuming that the pandemic does not drag on or dramatically upend the supply chains any further. So whereas the pandemic impacts the supply chain, the rising costs of energy has a more dramatic effect on demand. With costs increasing, people will limit their own consumption in the short term. However, it may also have the long-term effects of consumers implementing energy efficiency projects to reduce the cost of heating their homes, for example or it may lead some to invest in electric vehicles or install renewable energy if people believe petrol and electricity prices will remain high. And while these very current experiences may influence the growth of wind and solar, positively or negatively, they are occurring in the short term. However, the challenge of climate change and our collective effort to reduce greenhouse gas emissions stretches decades and requires both immediate and sustained action. With historical growth rates in wind and solar insufficient to meet the climate mitigation scenarios agreed upon in the Paris Agreement, we need governments to do more to support industry and consumers to adopt renewable energy technologies. We thank Jessica Jewell and Ali Chirp for chatting with us about their research. I also want to take a moment to thank Catherine Sheb for her preparatory work on this episode and her contributions as co-host of this podcast over the last year. Lastly, as always, we are so grateful to Franz Liebertsen, our production assistant. 
And I am also so glad to be back co-hosting the podcast again with you, Stephen. I'll be here with you and our listeners through the end of season four, concluding in May of this year. In the meantime, I am already working on our next episode exploring the possibility of artificial intelligence to support sustainability. So until next time, goodbye. Bye.